Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Who is Nell Scovell? She's the creator of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, first staff writer hired for Spy Magazine, second woman ever to write for The Simpsons, and one of only a handful of women to write for David Letterman. Scovel's other TV credits include Murphy Brown, Coach, and The Muppets. She also wrote jokes for Barack Obama at the White House Correspondence Center and co-authored Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg's memoir, Lean In. Now Scovell has written her own memoir, Just the Funny Parts, and a few hard truths about sneaking into the Hollywood Boys Club. So let's get to it. Get me Nell Scovell! I got Nell Scoville. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on Last Things First. Oh, happy to be here. Are you going to shout for a younger, cheaper Nell Scoville? No. Okay. No, I just want to talk about you. I get to do the whole you. podcast? Yeah. Well, so Last Things First. Do you think... No, not do you think. How would this book have been different, Just the Funny Parts, if you had written it before Lean In? Oh, I... I don't think I could have. I I learned so much from Sheryl Sandberg and just her ability to frame uh, experiences as not personal but Mm -hmm. cultural. So in in 2010, I watched her TED Talk, Why We Have So Few Women Leaders. And she talks about how um, women need to sit at the table. And this is such a cool concept because it works both metaphorically, right? That the table is there's an actual table where decisions get mm-hmm. made, and then there is the actual literal table. And um, I remembered being a story editor on Newhart mm-hmm. and having my name on my first script and walking into the table read where all the above the line people sat at this huge table. Larry, Daryl, and Daryl. Yeah. Well, the Daryl and Daryl didn't always come since they never had lines. But uh, They they, they weren't required to come to table read? (laughs) Interesting. But I sat on on the periphery with the Mm -hmm. assistants and no one waved me over. And so it really connected. And I always thought that had been my choice, that, you know, I didn't want to be too pushy or aggressive. And what Cheryl taught me was there is cultural pressure that was that was telling me to sit out, to not sit at the table. So it was an epiphany of sorts. It was. It was a total epiphany. So she, uh, I learned more in that twelve-minute TED talk than I had, um, you know, from all the venting bitch sessions <laughs> um, between friends. Okay. Well, so let's go back. Take me. The girl on the inside book jacket is you at 11 years old. <laughs> yes. What's going on in in 11-year-old Nell's life? Well, she's, she's very concerned about getting her report on the opossum. Right, marsupials. Done, right, and you can it's fit the, the – when they're born, you can fit five in a tablespoon. What? Also, the adult male possums have bifurcated penises. Hmm. It's like a barbecue fork. 
You know, you, you never forget that if you learn it at 11. <laughs> no, like I was, I was very studious mm-hmm. and I um, was very serious about my uh, academics. Um, but on the side, I loved watching these movies. I grew up in Boston and we had Channel 38, which mm-hmm. showed all the Marx Brothers movies. Um, was that the channel that showed Benny Hill late at night too? Oh, yeah. Oh, my I like- grandfather would show me that. He, my grandparents were, were from Lynn. Oh, well, that's Rivia, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lynn. Yeah, like I still we're remember sure. Benny um, Hill jokes of a guy, um, of a woman running into uh, an area and she yells, grape, grape. And he says, don't you mean rape? And she <laughs> says, no, there was a bunch of them. <laughs> And so later when – remember there was that whole discussion about whether you could make a rape joke, right. if rape could be funny. I was like – I was really um, like embarrassed because I like always loved that rape joke. <laughs> <laughs> Benny Hill, more than just the, the high, high speed chase scenes. Yeah. Michelle Wolf has a good rape joke in her uh, new uh, special – or Nice Lady. Yes. It's so funny. But you never, you never wanted to be a stand-up. No, I when digging through um, my um, primary sources mm-hmm. for my memoir, I actually did find a piece of paper uh, that had, you know, s- scribblings of what I remember was my playing around with stand-up. Premises, yeah. So you played around with it, but you you never. Went to an open mic or no? You know, I hung out in? with like early on. I was hanging out with people like Conan O'Brien, who was so confident and so funny, mm-hmm. um, and always doing shtick. You know, I remember when I was um, in my office, which was right next to Greg Daniels and Conan O'Brien's. This was on the Wilton North Report. Uh, yes, and and um, Conan once walking which down. It's okay if listeners don't remember. Fox doesn't even remember. I We called them to get permission to use some photographs. Mm-hmm. And the person in Fox Legal said there was um, no show called that in their database. So they wiped it from their corporate memory. Mm. Uh, but so I remember when sitting in my office and I had a friend with me who was really cute. And Conan was coming down the hall and he could see us sitting there and he starts singing the song. Oh, I'm the greatest lover in the world. All the ladies love to... Oh, no, Lynn, sorry, didn't know you were there. <laughs> and so he was playing for an audience of two. But you never you never played for an, for a live audience. You were always writing... No, I was... You know, I wasn't... I wasn't the class clown. Mm-hmm. I was the wisecracker who leans over and says the funny thing that gets someone else in trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah. That's me too. But it's 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 interesting to see because at least in in my well, younger younger than my generation, it seems as though people start in stand up and then the industry decides if they're going to be stand-ups or if they're going to be writers. Hmm. But you came fully formed as a writer, yes, there was I, never. No, I don't. I don't think that. I. But I there was never that debate about performing. Yeah, you never but had I, an I'm not buying struggle. into your your premise here. I think failed stand-ups often become writers, but I think there are a lot of writers who have no interest in being stand-ups. Okay. 
So it only goes one way. It's not a... Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go back to the girl at 11 who... who oh, right. Who learned and about the bifurcated mar- she learned She learned about marsupials. What did she want to be? Mm. Uh, a lawyer, because that was always a family joke. I was good mm. at arguing, so I should be a lawyer. Uh, and then I was interested in being pre-med, because it okay. seemed that's something smart people did. Right. Uh, but I'll tell you the one thing I never thought about was TV writing because <laughs> I grew up on the um, East Coast in Boston, and mm-hmm. we did not know from TV writing. Right. But you were so – when did you move away from Boston? What was the year? Were you there for for when the Boston comedy scene started to gel? I, know, I left around 83. Okay, so right, right about the time that it was – Starting yeah. to explode there with Stephen Wright and he's so funny and Kevin Meany and all those guys. I put Paula instant Pounce coffee in the microwave and went back in time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but I was in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, but again, I I watched a lot of stand up specials. I mean, I think Richard Pryor and Gary Shandling were amazing. You know, I watched all the Albert Brooks movies. Um, you said you said in the book that your dad introduced you to a lot of that stuff too. Well, the, like taking you to movies and yeah, putting TV shows on in front of you. Well, like my dad brought home the Tom Lehrer uh, album, mm-hmm. "An Evening Wasted with Tom Lehrer," and it, it's the funniest thing. And I think that really shaped a lot of my dark sense of humor. How old were you when you first listened to that stuff? No, I must have, I, around eleven, mm-hmm. I would think. You know, and that's all poisoning pigeons in the park. And I remember I used to listen to the masochistic tango, and I had no idea what it meant. None. <laughs> As a child of the seventies, you're no, you're somewhat innocent, but but no listening googling to dark back stuff. then. No, no googling, googling at all. So when you end up at Harvard, were you still thinking pre med or? or pre law, or what were you? I was, and then I wasn't, and then I. I comp for the crimson mm. um and got into sports writing you know it was me and jeff tubin was my year too and he um we covered sports and you know that allowed me to be creative within journalism you know you're supposed to have a quippy lead right right and it's it's and sports really, is more colorful yeah and it's about emotion mm-hmm. right the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat uh, so and winners and losers are very easily – there's no debate about who won or lost. In sports, no. Whereas politics, there's always spin. Yeah. So that was um, that was kind of my entry drug, okay. drug into comedy. Yeah. No, I mean, I was I got into journalism through sports as well. Did you? Yeah. I was, I was a Shot sports – pudding? I was a sports writer for my high school paper and then oh. eventually became the editor of the paper. And then somehow gravitated toward politics and then eventually to entertainment. So how did you get from journalism to comedy? Well, I... Was it a, was it a, a big leap or was it a gradual? No, it, it was a, sort of an epiphany. I uh, moved to New York. I luck into Spy Magazine, which is just taking off. And uh, Did um, you find them or did they find you? I found them, but they hadn't. They were still in just raw office space. They were just putting it together, 
And they, I was the first reporter they hired. What did you have on your resume and clips? Oh, you know, mostly it was I, – I mean, I had worked for like the Cambridge Chronicle. Right. And I'd written a piece for Cosmo magazine. Uh, was the Cosmo piece satirical? Oh, no. It was just some <laughs> essay like – they give you the the um, topic. It was like my three ghastly weeks with a grade C lover. Ooh. I know. It's very Helen Gurley Brown. Uh, but I had was also, that fictional or was that nonfictional? That was fictional. Okay. So the best part about Spy is it's the most amazing experience in your 20s to find people who think the way you do about comedy right. and about satire because too often you go, is that is that funny or mean, right? Yeah, because spy is that was, fair or funny. Because spy in the in the eighties and night in late into the late eighties and early nineties was that that space right in between National Lampoon and The Onion, where spy was the I don't the it, be all no because all. both of those are are fictional. I mean, spy was journalism, but. But for people, you know, who, but, but for people of a certain well, so bent, the the co- first cover story go. was the ten most embarrassing New Yorkers, and one of them was Donald J. Trump. Uh, so how I've far been, he's come since then? I've been making fun of him for a very long time. Um, yeah, that's where short fingered fingered vulgarian, vulgarian comes from. So, but it was great because they they we all pushed each other mm-hmm. and. Uh, it was back when you could actually look through a phone book and call someone at home and they didn't say, you need to talk to my publicist. They answered your questions. Uh, and then I moved into uh, over to Vanity Fair and I was writing for Vogue and Rolling Stone. And one day I bumped into an old friend from Spy and she said to me, Nell, I don't mean this as an insult, but I think you could write for television. And it truly was the first time it occurred to me. So what did you do next? I wrote a spec script. I called the one person I knew who knew anything about Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you write a spec script of a show. Did you know what a spec script was? Well, I had them send me some. And, you know, it's just... Because it's still pre-Google. Right. No, they just (laughs) say... It's hard for most of our listeners to understand how you had to go about a career... Before the internet. Yeah, you needed to find a connector. <laughs> uh, but it was, you know, the most popular show at, the, at that time was the Cosby show. Mm-hmm. Cheers was big. Um, I chose to write an episode of its. Oh, maybe Cheers wasn't on yet. It was the Cosby show. No, Cheers uh, was on. Golden then. Girls. Cheers, was start, Cheers, started, Cheers started before Cosby. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I wrote an episode for It's Gary Shandling Show, which is nuts because nobody watched that show. <laughs> um, but they ended up buying it. Was there something about Gary's voice that, that oh, I loved, spoke to you? I, you know, I love to stand up. His, mm-hmm. his, there was an absurdity to his first show that really appealed to me. You know, when people are, I ask me The fact me that it was for, breaking the fourth wall and... Yeah. When they ask me for advice about spec scripts, I always say, you know, pick the show that's closest to your sense of humor. It, it will just be so much easier for you to write. Did this friend who told you about spec scripts tell you what to do once you had written it? 
Well, he introduced me to his agent, and okay. based on my spy clips, this agent who was in his 20s said, you know, you'll, I'll take you on. Okay. And he, so he was funneling me information. Okay. And then you, hit, you got a hit right away from that spec script. Kind of. I mean, yes, but then it turned out to be a long foul fly. Right. They said they'd make it, and then they didn't. And but they paid me, so yeah, I was so off and running. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of. Some people would say beginner's luck. Other people would say you're a prodigy at it. Well, well, it, how did you? How did you? At the time, how did you feel? Well, it taught me everything I needed to know about Hollywood in that <laughs> first experience, which mm-hmm. is, you can only control the process; you can't control the outcome. And if you enjoy writing and the people you meet because of the writing, then you'll uh, enjoy Hollywood. And if you're expecting to have something to show for it, to mm-hmm. get respect, <laughs> like, don't do it. Yeah. No, I've, I've had people ask me over the years about if I've ever written a screenplay. And I've, I've had no real desire to. I, I'd much prefer being a journalist. Yeah. But I, so I, I'm trying to see the world through your eyes and how, when you made that, that, that jump, how that felt to go from writing for magazines to suddenly being in Hollywood. I continued to write for magazines mm-hmm. and still do, in part because I always thought Hollywood would go away and it would just vanish overnight. And for so, you or for everybody? For me, <laughs> and that I would always have this journalism career to fall back on. Okay. And I think that did help me um, with r- taking risks. I mean, I even remember, I think, when I went to Hollywood for my Gary Shandling meeting, like having an assignment from Vogue while I was here for that meeting. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I thought, well... You know, I, I can always return to this. I still think that. <laughs> really? Yeah. Hmm. Do you, and you think that kind of helps? I do. To, I mean, to it take gave the risks me. To... Yeah. Yeah, it's a safety net. Because some people would say a safety net will hold you back. Right. I. Uh. It. It was good for me. I think. Hmm. Um. But the book, what was interesting was the book sort of took me back to my journalist beginnings. And I did some reporting in the book. Like um, my uh, editor kept saying to me, like, you need to put more emotion in the book. Like, how did you feel when you got that job on Newhart? And it's funny, I don't remember that stuff very well. And I was afraid that I just would be making it up. Like, well, I got the job, so... In the meeting, I must have felt confident. Mm-hmm. So then I remembered, well, I'm still friends with the guy I had the meeting with, this guy named Bob Benditson, who was one of my early mentors, and he's a great guy. So um, I called Bob up, and I said, what was I like in that meeting? And he said, you were so nervous. He said, you kept making jokes, and I kept saying, Nell, we think you're funny. You can stop. We can just talk. But you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> now, when he's telling you this, did suddenly the memories come back to you? or No, but it, I or believed did it feel, him. Or did it feel like, oh, I must have blacked out that whole experience? I, you know, that that's who I am. I sort of don't dwell on that stuff. And I keep, 
you know, I tend to be very focused mm-hmm. on the work. Well, tell me then, tell me then what it was like to decide to create your own series with Sabrina. Was that the first thing you tried to create or had you had other projects no, I had that just, you pitched before that? I had just shot a pilot called Prudy and Judy that was starring Laura Bell Bundy, mm-hmm. who went on to be Elle Woods in the Broadway version of Legally Blonde, and Jackie Tone, who's mm-hmm. in Glow now, and they were teenage girls. Uh, Alan Thicke played Laura Bell Bundy's father. Okay. And part of my job as showrunner was making sure <laughs> to keep him a safe distance from her. <laughs> it's like, no, the dad doesn't have to sit that close to the daughter on the bed, really. <laughs> uh, and then Sabrina came to me. It's interesting how we can what? talk about this stuff so much more honestly now. Now that he's perhaps. dead. No, no, just about... a. About the culture. Yeah. Now that we've had this breakthrough with Me Too and Time's Up and... Yeah. It, it's it's no longer this thing that's hu- that, you know, we talk about Cosby or Louis C.K. in hushed tones. Now we talk about it in microphones. Yeah. And- that's true. That's true. I mean, I think it came about because women felt they had nothing left to lose. Especially when that short-fingered vulgarian. Yeah. No, exactly. I think that was a tipping point, as they say. Mm. Um, but you're but you're show running this show that. Oh, didn't Pretty go. and Judy Pretty doesn't and Judy go. Doesn't go. Uh, and then Sabrina falls into my lap. You know, it was based on this Archie comic book, mm-hmm. and while I didn't refer to the comic books while creating the show. The core uh, cast of characters of Sabrina lives with two aunts. They Mm -hmm. have a talking cat, and she has a boyfriend named Harvey. You know, we were locked into those. But you hadn't thought about about doing your own show before that? No, I mean, I I had an overall deal at Fox, and Mm -hmm. I was developing shows. Okay. uh, So you were on the hunt for something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it was so perfect for me. I love magic and I love science fiction and it was a way to do typical TGIF stories with a twist. Mm-hmm. When you made that when you made that deal, did you think that you were you were starting a new chapter in your life? Like I've I've got this development deal to start to create shows. I'm now not just a writer. I'm now going to be a showrunner. I'm going to be the person with the big chair and sit at the head of the table. And- yeah, I. But but you, you apprentice. You know, you're. I was a story editor on New Heart. Mm-hmm. Then I worked for three seasons on Coach. Then I went to Murphy Brown, and so you at each step you build up your skill sets and. You know, back then staffs were really small, so I would write, you know, I coach five episodes a year. And, um, you know, by the time I got to my overall deal, I, I had been in casting and I'd been in editing and uh, I understood the process. But was that your goal all along was to do all the steps to get up to the top? Yes, yes. That's the fun part, creating your own show. Well, some people some – people... Some people don't want that kind of responsibility. Some people would rather just be a writer. Or... Yeah. 
No, I, I to me, it's ambition. it's it's determined by the ideas, and some. You're right. Some people don't have ideas mm-hmm. that, um, but I, you know, I've probably written a pilot every year for the past twenty five years. That's awesome. Yeah. How how do, so? How do you approach pilot season now then compared to twenty five years ago? Does it just become a um, a game? Or is it more – how do you approach it? Is it a game? Is it a challenge? Is it a mental – what's the best idea I can come up with this year? Or? Yeah, I, th- I think you want to find the moment. So I did um, a pilot which did not get picked up for CBS this year. That was called Trophy Sister. Mm-hmm. And it was about a blue-collar couple that uh, – he's a school nurse. She's a teacher at the school. Um, and her sister was married to this super wealthy guy and lived in Italy, and she breaks up with him. He was much older. She caught him cheating, and she moves in with her blue-collar sister and husband, and the joke was um, she was the 1%, and she was mooching off (laughs) – the the ninety nine percent, and that's actually what they do. The yeah, percent they mooch off of us. That's right. Even though they already have everything. So it was this fun metaphor of of uh, you know the, these two sisters trying to um, understand each other's world. So when you're writing a pilot like that, when you submit it, do you have a good sense of in your own head of whether it's going to go, or do you do you do you let go of it and just go, I don't know what else CBS is considering, but I did my best. I did my part. Right. I mean, it goes back to the lesson I learned from that first spec script for Shanling. Mm-hmm. I can only control the process. I can't control the outcome. Um, you know, I'd been over and over it and punching it up, and I felt like it had lots of funny jokes, and it had good characters and a fine premise. And... That's all you can do. Does that does that help when you also go through experiences like I know you were part of the Muppets reboot, which was very touted and very celebrated, and then all of fizzled. a sudden, and then all of a sudden fizzled, and everybody's like, "What happened?" So when you're on the inside of something like that, does that having learned that lesson so early on in in life and in your career, does that help you emotionally process it yeah. when it when it happens? I mean, that one was hard because I actually thought. Um, it was a really good premise, and it was a very uh, unfortunate Hollywood problem of a lot of different visions for what the show could be. And instead of everyone getting in a room together and working it out, it became battles of the stage and the writer's mm-hmm. room and the studio. Um, I still think it could have worked, and it should have worked. Uh but it was also very expensive, so and, and it was hard to produce. I mean, it everything Those had to be custom, custom built, and oh, okay. And think about it too. I mean, it was so hard on the actors because you know one guy will play five different characters, so you have scenes where you know Bill Barrett is playing both sides of the conversation, okay. and that's really grueling. Yeah. Um, so 
you've already mentioned how when you saw Cheryl's TED talk, yeah. you had the epiphany about having a voice at the table. When you were when you were younger, you knew that you were the minority at all the, in all of these writers' rooms. Did did you was there a support group then? Did you have other women that you could talk to? Uh, a, a few. Or did uh, you really feel kind of alone? No, Robin Schiff was really great to me. She mm. um, wrote Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, and she's, she's so funny and so brilliant. And um, there was Miriam Trogdon was around, Eileen Heisler, and um, Deanne Helene, who created The Middle. We were on Murphy Brown together. Corby Siamis was there. And I, I truly think, too, we we all thought it's getting better. And the big surprise to me in 2009 was how far we had slid back and that there were zero women in the Letterman writer's room and Leno's writer's room right. and Conan's writer's room. Zero. Like you literally can't do worse. Right. <laughs> what Did... Did you ever get a satisfactory answer as to what happened to for the, to make that backwards slide? I I think the status quo is really hard to fight. Hmm. And uh Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I no, I didn't get a satisfactory answer. Okay. Yeah, cuz I know that we would we would communicate via Facebook whenever <laughs> there was a new show or whenever there was some sort of awards or festival lists, and they would talk about, oh, there's 50 guys and three women at this thing. Yeah. Is it getting better, do you think? I think people are more aware. I don't know. Yes, if- and uh, there's there's definitely more awareness. Yeah. I think, well, when you talk about like comedy festivals and the yeah. booking of those with performers, there's so many festivals that I think plenty of them still do the same old thing. Yeah. But the high-profile ones probably because people are paying attention to them, have at least made more of an effort. Yeah. I mean, as you well know, late night TV is still... Well, Colbert now has four female writers in their writer's room. So okay. that's that's not... That's, I don't know, a third, maybe a little under, but that's that better. Only t- that only took three years of haranguing. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of feel like Colbert had the same attitude as, as Letterman. When we talk about like Letterman uh, in that new episode of his new show with Tina Fey, where he's yeah, where he's talking about wondering why women would write, I feel like Colbert was saying the same things about his show, or saying like I didn't realize that this was a thing. It's uh, you know, it's very easy to feign ignorance over things that you just aren't paying attention to. Right, I think that's. Yeah, it's the negligence. That's yeah. that's negligence. It's yeah. They're they're really complicated jobs. I'm mm-hmm. sure you're. You know, I also think it's such a treadmill working on a late night show that you don't catch up. You know, you're just always trying to do that day's show, and that makes it harder. I think to think um, big picture or long term, but. It's not going to change until people start making time for that. How much of an effort do you think or how much success do you think you've had in terms of changing the the conversation at least 
through your articles and through. Oh, I, I mean, I'm arm twisting, and I, I just think it's one more voice, and mm. I don't think, in particular, you know, I tell the story in just the funny parts about meeting Gloria Steinem, and her launching into a story. She had just come back from India, and had this really, I was filled with all these tragic stories about what happens to young girls in India. Oh yeah, I won't go into them, and then. I turned to her at one point and said, I can't believe I care about late night TV when things like that are happening in the world. And, um, you know, she got a little gleam in her eye and she leaned over and said, uh, no, you worry about late night. I'll worry about India. <laughs> and what she meant was there are problems all over. And if you have a specific knowledge of a specific area – it's really great when, when I can stand up having been on Letterman, having written on The Simpsons, knowing the, you know, the ins and outs of how these shows hire people. Um, it, it, it is more meaningful when I can stand up and say, here are some solutions. Here's what you're not looking at. Here's not what, what you're not considering. Plus, you've written jokes for Barack Obama. Plus, I like to think I'm not being very funny today, but I do. Uh, <laughs> hope. But you're very funny on paper. Yes. Well, because as we've learned, you're not the performing type. You're, no, I'm not. You're the writer. Well, I'm also quite deadpan, so I feel like if uh, hold for laughs. Yeah. <laughs> how how did you how did you first get in with the president? The only president oh. of our of our lifetime that we will re- ever remember. Yeah, so <laughs> that was that was through Facebook, and uh, the president was visiting, mm-hmm. and they asked me to write, you know, some introductory jokes, and okay. I wrote one about how um, uh, the president was very popular on Facebook uh, with half a million more likes, and he'd be as popular as SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Facebook, uh, they wrote me back and said, now we're trying to honor the president, not roast him. Mm-hmm. But Cheryl showed the joke. She thought it was funny, and she showed it to John Favreau, who was Barack Obama's speechwriter. Speech yeah, yeah. And it just happened. It was two weeks before the White House Correspondents' Dinner in 2011. So, Oh, that year. Yeah, Favs <laughs> wrote me and said, will you submit some jokes? So I had... I had a bunch that year. Did you ever get to meet the president? No. No. He sent me a photograph that said, um, thanks for the jokes. I'm glad I was able to provide the material. <laughs> so funny. Right? <laughs> I miss him. Uh, now I have to go cry. He's still here. He Come back. He come, back. come back. Come back, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> Shane! Um, well, so speaking of Facebook... I don't know if you've signed any sort of non-disclosure agreements. <laughs> or you're still, with, my, with my lawyer, Michael Cohen. Or you're still too tight. <laughs> my dad actually said that the other day. He said, why don't you float a rumor that you had an affair with Trump to try and sell your book? And uh, That was Mel's said, idea? That was Mel's idea. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad one. Everyone's so obsessed with him. I mean, for good reason. With Mel? No, with Donald <laughs> Trump. It's like all we can think about. It's all he wants us to think about. I know. But back to Facebook. Yes. So 
I I don't want to get you in any trouble because I know you wrote you know you wrote the book with Cheryl. But tell me honestly, do you think Facebook has been good for comedy or bad for comedy? Oh, I think it's been great for comedy. And I think all social media is great for comedy. I think about like Sam Grittner, who's so funny, who just built this whole Twitter following, or Megan Amran, mm-hmm. who just comes out of the gate in college. And you're funny. It's unfiltered. Like before you had to know someone. Right. You needed that connector. Yeah. And, and I mean, now you can – by the strength of your writing, get noticed. Not everyone, and I still wish more men retweeted women, and especially women of color, to amplify their voices. Uh, but it's, I think it's a great leveler. 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 I, that came but, out weird. But that <laughs> – leveler. Well, most words come out weird if you look at them long enough. That's true. Um, bifurcated is one. No, not that one. No, not that but one. <laughs> many others. <laughs> but you think social media is the pluses of leveling the playing field outweighs all of the trolls and all of the the misuses, right. the abuses of Well, I'm a blocker, not a fighter. Oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> if the second I get called, you know, a a twad, it's uh-huh. like goodbye. <laughs> Well, Nell, uh, thank you so much for not blocking me. Well, thank you for not calling me a twat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, get me the next Nell Scoville. <laughs> <laughs> what if someone just walked in the door? A 25-year-old brunette. Uh, I'm here. All right. This is so much fun. I'm so happy I got to meet you in uh, person. Me too. I feel like we've only <laughs> talked on Facebook, so it's so nice. Yeah, no, this person. is this is great, and thank you for amplifying com- comedians' voices and for all you do. I try. Yeah, you succeed. Oh, thanks. Okay. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave. Logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.